0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Despite improving U.S. economic performance, including a strong jobs report and rising wages, Wall Street plunged as the Fed, as expected, raised borrowing rates by half a percent, uh, which the street has called for to battle inflation and prevent a recession. A New York Times story that Ukraine is using U.S. intelligence to kill Russian generals and sink the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva. U.S. officials said what they have said before. America and its allies are sharing intelligence with Kiev, but what Ukraine does with that information is up to them. A European official mirrored those comments, saying that Ukraine's understanding of your, of Russian doctrine is what is making the difference. The question now is whether the reconfirmation that the United States has been helping Ukraine somehow forces Vladimir Putin to respond. Will bipartisanship survive the release of a draft Supreme Court opinion to repeal Roe versus Wade and the constitutional right to an abortion, or whether the issue uh, will also crowd out national security issues from the national debate, whether Ukraine, Russia, China, and Taiwan. Uh, Indeed, uh, Ukraine was leading... Uh, on every major national newspaper until the revelation that the Supreme Court uh, would uh, annul Roe versus Wade. Russia is making incremental uh, progress, but uh, especially in advance of the big May 9 celebration. Uh, of the end of World War II, but Ukraine has damaged another Russian Black Sea warship, the frigate Admiral Makarov. Deputy Defense Secretary Kath Hicks made her case for the administration's national security strategy and its $773 billion uh, budget request in a terrific conversation at the Reagan Institute uh, with its director Roger uh, Zakheim. And I uh, submit uh, that folks should check out that two-hour a one-hour interview conversation and another one-hour panel uh, discussion that included Max Dornberry, Elaine Luria, as well as Michelle Flournoy, uh, uh, moderated by uh, NBC's Courtney Kubi. COVID lockdowns remain in place as leaders debate tightening limits on Beijing and continue denying Moscow military equipment while continuing to buy Russian energy. Japan's Defense Minister Nobu Kishi met with Defense Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin, warning of an imminent North Korean uh, danger. President Biden visits Saudi Arabia and Turkey's Recep type Erdogan buried the hatchet with uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, as the two met in Jeddah as Iran conducts uh, another ballistic missile test. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, our producer Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy public affairs officer uh, who uh, co-founded the Provision Advisors PR firm, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies, among his many affiliations. But before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Check out our Cavas Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavas, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us and for bearing uh, with me for this terribly long introduction. Michael, uh, we've had hearings uh, this week, but as you always like to point out, any lobbyist worth the money you're paying them is not listening uh, to hearings. Uh, Still, what are you hearing on um, where we're headed on the defense budget, right? I mean, there's still the $100 billion number, a little bit more discussion about whether that's too much, whether that's too little. We're going to go to Dove here in a minute uh, to uh, hear about what Cath Hicks had to say, because obviously it was a very rich budget conversation, and then we can get into Russia, Ukraine, and and, and the rest. But just sort of give us your sense on what you're picking up from lawmakers on where we're headed uh, on defense uh, spending this year.
1: Uh, sure. Uh, so I, you know, as you know, the House has been out of session this week, and uh, the Senate's been in session. So with, with the House out, uh, there's not been a lot of activity, but there's been a lot of the same uh, drumbeat that we heard last week, and after the budget came out, that uh, the budget uh, woefully underfunds defense. Uh, the, the, the numbers used to calculate inflation are insufficient, and it also doesn't include a five percent increase um, that is required under the national defense strategy. So you know, when you look at the five percent increase plus accounting for inflation, we're hearing still hearing numbers anywhere from fifty billion to one hundred fifty billion uh, to be added to the defense budget. So that still remains to be seen. but I don't think we're going to really see um, an agreed upon top line, most likely until after the FG election because, there are a lot of other things going on like, you know, bill back better and possibly forgiving student loan debt and things that could increase the non-defense discretionary side, which will, you know, forestall a, a deal on a, on a defense number. It'll be very interesting to see, what the authorized decide to do, because they're going to go first, and I think they're going to try and mark up to a higher number, uh, and that remains to be seen what that number is going to be, but I think it'll be well in excess of $50 billion. Uh, but, you know, the, the topic du jour really when it comes to spending is the the Ukraine package that's on the Hill, and plus you know, COVID relief. Uh, you know, as we as, as you know, the president sent over a $33 billion request last Thursday, but You know, it really didn't give Congress enough time to act on it because uh, votes ended in the House on Thursday before they left for a week, and the Senate did not take it up this week. And I've been talking to Democrats and Republicans this week, and there is some bipartisan skepticism on some of that package and the things that they don't consider core funding. Uh, For example, there's $550 million in that request for critical munitions, acquisitions, and defense exports. So $500 of that would establish a critical munitions acquisition fund, which would procure high-demand munitions for the U.S. and approve coalition partners and build critical war reserves, expedite availability of munition systems, and there's $50 million in there to establish uh, a defense exportability transfer account, which would enable the department to make more systems exportable and interoperable. So both Republicans and Democrats feel that this is really less geared toward Ukraine, um, and there's really a lot of concerns over congressional oversight. How would this work? And um, can the industrial base even support that? So I think those are things that are going to actually slow down uh, the agreement on uh, Ukraine supplemental because those things may not find their way into the final bill. At the same time, uh, the Democrats, especially in the Senate, want to c- attach uh, COVID relief uh, still to this Ukraine package. And you know, without a, a vote on uh, a, a title, changing Title 42, I don't see that getting through the Senate. So I think that that Will delay it. I think eventually they're going to have to separate COVID relief from the Ukraine package. But I don't see the Ukraine package passing uh, next week or COVID relief.
0: And uh, give us a quick update on chips and uh, Yuseika. Right, chips is what uh, the or competes uh, is what the House calls it, and Yuseika is what the Senate
1: calls it. Right. So the, the Senate did take some action on that this week. Uh, they completed their last series of votes uh, needed to officially send the bill uh, to to conference. Um, you know, however, uh, the jurisdiction of this bill is goes through multiple committees. Uh, there's over a hundred conferees combined from both the House and the Senate. So the conference negotiations on uh, USICA, you know, competes will be very, very uh, complex. And if, there is a bill, a final bill in the end. It'll be much closer to the Senate product than it was to the House product. The House bill passed with only one Republican vote, where the Senate bill was much more of a bipartisan product. Uh, you know, the, the one thing everybody agrees upon is the 52 billion dollars in there for the Chips Act. You know, to incentivize domestic semiconductor chip manufacturing. That's going to be in the final version if there is one. If there's not. Uh, as we mentioned last week, it'll probably be pulled out and added to an end of year on the Bus Appropriations Bill. Uh, We're limited how many um, legislative days are left and there's a lot of hangups in the um, USICA competes uh, conference. So mostly things dealing with with trade policy. Uh, And then there are things that'll be no-goes. I mean, the House bill has things on climate change, immigration provisions, And then, you know, remember, this bill is being sold, too, if someone's going to help uh, solve our supply chain issues and deal with inflation. As we get closer to election, uh, does partisanship prevail? And do Republicans not want to give Biden uh, that kind of win? And, you know, also, we're still waiting to see how engaged the White House is going to be, because the White House has been pretty hands off on these discussions so far. And are they going to engage?
0: Indeed. And um, I I will just say about the uh, Ukraine package. Right. Never never let a good crisis go to waste. Okay, if it can address a Ukraine problem. Uh, Great, but if you can address some other problems that you may have, uh, right, uh, uh, you know, it came up in the Reagan Institute event today that there's $14 billion in aid, you know, waiting to go to Taiwan, and there are all manner of delays in getting that capability there. And uh, Representative Mike Gallagher uh, of uh, Wisconsin arguing, hey, why don't we triage and prioritize the aid and maybe even... Uh, give capability to allies and partners who are waiting for a final capability uh, to get there. In the case of Taiwan, particularly important. Dov, I want to jump uh, to you. Uh, uh, one of the other uh, great Zach Himes in this town, Roger Zach your son, uh, and one of the driving forces behind the annual uh, Reagan National Defense Forum, and certainly the executive director of the Reagan Institute, had a terrific conversation with uh, Dr. Kath Hicks. Uh, today, uh, at which um, you know there was a lot of thrust and and parry in the intellectual arguments for the foundations of the strategy. Uh, obviously, Kath was one of the generators of that strategy, and would argue, and as she did argue, I think effectively, we did the best we could to do this in a balanced way under the resources that we were given by the White House, as as Roger noted, something she couldn't you know, it it was a big leap for the White House to give the Pentagon as much money as it gave it, even if some of it is being uh, consumed by uh, inflation. What were, from your standpoint, uh, some of the key takeaways in the conversation?
2: Well, I would say the most important one was her saying that, uh, obviously, the uh, inflation rate they were given was far too low. She pointed out that uh, inflation estimates are just that, so that uh, she downplayed the uh, argument that inflation will eat into the 23 budget because she said, we don't know what the actual rate will be. And she said, the problem is right now for fiscal 22. But she also said, and I thought this was exceedingly important, we'll come back for supplementals. She essentially committed that they would uh, cover all inflation. Uh, I think. Maybe that's not what she intended, but that sure as heck is what she said. And I thought that was an extremely important point. Um, look, she made a very good case uh, for a very weak budget. Uh, everyone understands that in many ways, this budget is a gold watch. The Pentagon is anticipating uh, congressional increases. Uh, and she made the best case she could. One of the thing, uh, other major takeaways was that she said, look, we fall short. When it comes to munitions and supplies generally. And I think that uh, what we're seeing in Ukraine is exactly that. So, the 500 million that Mike just talked about, that people are questioning, uh, their assumption seems to be that, well, you know, we'll use the munitions we have. But historically, munitions always fall short of what people actually have. And so, the issue of ramping up, of getting through, uh, not just the valley of death for big systems, but getting industry involved in coming back up and essentially providing these additional munitions is a major issue that I think Ukraine has highlighted. Um, the, she parried, I think, quite well the question of, well, how are you going to manage Ukraine and Russia, uh, uh, rather, and China? She argued very strongly for a Taiwanese porcupine defense, Uh, She said that the current situation, the strategic ambiguity uh, regarding Taiwan uh, still signaled that we would come to Taiwan's aid if it were attacked. Uh, But the point was made uh, by the panel that succeeded her uh, that, uh, in fact, there isn't enough clarity about that. And I think it was Elaine Luria who said we ought to be very, very clear that we will indeed uh, defend Taiwan. Uh, But I thought, all in all, uh, given the the nature of of the budget that's coming down to Congress, uh, Kath Hicks made a pretty good job of it.
0: Uh, She did. And and one of the other points uh, that goes uh, in line with uh, what uh, you were saying, Dov, was she also said that, right, I mean, any good strategy is one that you continue to adapt, and we would continue to adapt this strategy, right? It it is not a snapshot in time, and neither is it frozen. You have to be able to adjust it continually. And I think that it was in in part because of uh, Roger's contention that that Russia may have somehow been underplayed, although I didn't didn't, uh, particularly uh, get that sense.
1: (laughs)
2: Well, I, I think one has to be careful uh, what one means by adjustments. Uh, our strategy, and many people say we don't really have one, um, but leaving that argument aside, we ch- tend to change our strategy too frequently. Uh, minor adjustments is one thing. Major adjustments, which we've done, uh, is another. And I'll give you a concrete example, the Middle East. We've basically said uh, we you know, are downplaying uh, our role in the Middle East which is all very nice. But we have a major force presence in that region. And there hasn't been much discussion about how we're going to alter that false force presence. So, you know, what's out there in the real world and what our strategy is and how we're changing it, um, it leaves very many question marks.
0: Uh, Michael, let me just go back to you for a, a quick uh, question on Roe v. Wade and how it's going to affect bipartisanship, and whether or not it's going to crowd out uh, some other uh, issues. And, and Chris, I want to get your take uh, on this uh, in a moment. But give us, give us your sense. What are you hearing from lawmakers, right? I mean, Democrats are looking at this as this energizes our base. The problem is, r- 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 Democrats are, are divided and always want to leap for the brass ring, whereas the GOP builds a bridge. It, nobody should be surprised that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Six of those justices were were picked over the course of these last many decades, four decades, in fact, uh, to uh, to unwind Roe versus Wade uh, ultimately, and 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 that's the outcome that we have. Right, Uh, uh, the Chief Justice Roberts is irrelevant to that. To be nice, he'll vote with a minority on the court while getting what it is he ultimately wants, Uh, even if it raises raises you know opens a Pandora's box of other issues about personal liberties and privacy and. Uh, and, and everything else. What's your sense on, on what Roe v. Wade does, what it does for bipartisanship uh, and what, it, and whether or not pretty much everything else gets crowded out between now and November and beyond?
1: Well, I, I think you're right. So, you know, there are, you know, predictions, of course, from many Democrats that are saying this could change the outlook uh, for the midterm elections by, immobilizing you know, mobilizing their base and maybe, uh, you know, affecting some middle of road voters. You know, so we'll take a look at, I mean, at, the Democrats raised $12 million the day after the news broke about the Supreme Court opinion on Roe versus Wade, which is three times their daily average, right? So definitely people felt motivated. However, um, the day after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, the, the Democrats raised $70 million in one day. So I think it gets back to your earlier point that, I think a lot of people aren't surprised uh, by this. And so some of the outrage is a little bit of, you know, of, of feigned outrage. And And there's going to be a lot of messaging on the Hill, and they're going to eat up some of the legislative days dealing with this. The Senate's going to vote next week on codifying uh, Roe. Uh, they have done that before, uh, uh, earlier, I think, in February. And the vote failed. They couldn't even get a majority. I mean, I think uh, it, it was a fail of 46 to 48 and as you mentioned, the Democrats are uh, not all on board on this. And Senator Manchin, for one, is 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 pro life, and he's not going to support this. And then we're going right. to go through the whole Reagan again about getting rid of the filibuster, uh, and you know that will waste more time as well. Um, you know, and I think you know, look, well, this is already starting to slowly you know fade from the front pages, but it will be back again uh, when the final opinion comes out in June. But uh, I think. Again, you know, the, the, uh, it'll be hard for the Democrats to maintain this momentum going into uh, November, is my opinion. And I think what won't fade, especially in the summer, will be the high gas prices as we are going into summer driving season, and, and high inflation. Uh, things are are not going to uh, fade, you know, from the headlines. And I think that those are the things that are going to matter to voters um, going into November. And, you know, and as far as the, the partisanship goes, uh, I, I really don't think that this is a, a, a is long-term damaging to partisanship on Capitol Hill, bipartisanship on Capitol Hill. I mean, we got past, or we haven't got completely passed, but we've got a, come a long way since January 6th. You know, after January 6th, we felt that was the end of bipartisanship. Uh, Democrats weren't gonna work with Republicans. They weren't gonna sign letters to Republicans. Um, they, they were threatening uh, companies downtown as far as their uh, giving was concerned to Republicans. And slowly but surely, you know, that has started to unwind. And Democrats and Republicans are working together to do the essential people's business. Um, it's not as good as it was decades ago, uh, but there are still a, a lot of people up there who recognize that they still have a job to do. And just as we will get past uh, what happened on January 6th, we're gonna get past uh, Roe versus Wade as well. Um, Chris,
3: uh, you have a slightly different uh, take on it. Give us, give us your take and what your concern. Uh, concerned. Well, I'm I'm happy to hear Michael say that. Um, My my concern is, is that it will further crowd out the discussion on national security, uh, a topic that has become less and less uh, of one to make it, you know, above the fold. Uh, in uh, major campaign discussions, uh, whether it's congressional or uh, for the presidency, um, and so as we talked throughout the week, and uh, a- a- as I squawk on our Cavish Ships podcast, my-, my concern is that, not to be kitschy, that it becomes harder to talk about blue and gold as, as more pe- people focus on blue and red. Um, and-, and so I, I just see the- the- this latest bounce w- with uh, the Roe versus Wade, uh, you know, potential overturning of Roe versus Wade as more of an obstacle for folks to focus on national security to focus on the Chinese, to focus on the Russians, to focus on the whole of government type issues that we're seeing uh, are necessary when dealing
1: with a crisis uh, le- like Ukraine. So no, I, I don't I don't disagree but but go ahead, Michael. I, I think that there's a difference of what they can do and what they can't do and the folks on Capitol Hill they can't do anything about roe right They can waste time trying to trying to codify it but it's never going to pass. So, But what they can do are things that deal with defense and national security. And th- the defense bill uh, is a must-pass bill, and we will see an NDAA, we will see a defense appropriations bill, and that will get done below, I think, all the rhetoric that's going to go on on uh, Roe versus Wade and any other issues too. I mean, I think, you know, inflation and jobs and crime and things like that are always going to be up there. And, you know, you're right. I, I, but I also think that, you know, Voters vote based on pocketbook issues and how how, who's going to make my life better. And national security issues kind of ebb and they flow. And right now, it is something that both sides are taking seriously. And I don't think that this will detract from the fact that people are worried about our national security, what's happening in Europe, and and the threats that China poses to us.
0: 35% are voting on the economy, even if there are structural elements of the economy that are looking better, whether it's about employment numbers being good, wages are going up 5.5%. Uh, that's the biggest leap we've seen in a long time. Rate of inflation is uh, slowing down. People will profit take uh, in any uh, circumstance where they felt like they haven't been able to do that, um, right? Gas prices go up like a rocket, come down like a feather, uh, even as supply uh, will, 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 will increase in certain places. Um, uh, let me go, Dove uh, and Patrick, again to you guys and whether or not you guys also think that the Roe v. Wade uh, issue uh, is is going to be be something that that crowds uh, crowds the budget. Patrick, maybe you go first because you've been patiently waiting uh, for the Asia portion of the discussion. So let me just get you in, and then Dove uh, take a bite at this, uh, and then we can move on to the next issue. Go ahead.
4: Well, I agree with Mike. Um, you know, Australia's first Pentecostalist Prime Minister Scott Morrison has assiduously tried to avoid this issue becoming the divisive, protracted issue in Australian politics that he claims rightly that it has become over the decades uh, divisive and protracted in the United States. So, uh, you know, this is not a new issue. It's going to continue to be a divisive issue, um, but we're still going to be able to do national security, even while we are divided over this issue.
2: Well, I I partly agree with Mike uh, in the sense that, yes, and with Patrick, national security is going to continue to be a major issue, uh, particularly if the war in Ukraine continues to drag on. Uh, or if Putin, uh, the war ends, but it does involve Putin picking up more land. I, I don't think that the issue will uh, drop out of the front pages. What will happen, I think, and uh, maybe Mike might disagree, I think there's going to be a CR again uh, and for political reasons. And so what really is going to matter is when the appropriators uh, cut the defense deal uh, and uh, the Republicans, I think... Uh, might want to wait until you know the election because they think they're going to take at least the house um that i don't see uh i'm not the expert mike is but i simply do not see a defense
1: appropriation before november so i Michael. i agree with dove i think dove is exactly right uh we will see another the cr and the question is how long will that CR be for, right? So uh, I think he's right. It will pro- most likely go until after the election. And then will they be able to get these bills done before the end of the calendar year? I think it's in the Republicans' best interest to cooperate with the Democrats to do so because one of the first thing the Republicans will have to do if they are in control of the House in January is raise the debt ceiling. And the optics of passing a $1.5 trillion omnibus at the same time you're raising the debt ceiling will be very difficult, so I'm hopeful that they can get this done this year, but it will, there would definitely be a CR, so Dove is correct.
0: Um, I, I, my uh, concern, and, and just to mirror a little bit uh, Chris's, is in, in the course of fighting these corners, um, it's going to get very problematic and, in fact... Uh, there will be a lot of internecine, interparty warfare uh, again among Democrats. Right? Um, you know, re- Republicans will hang firm uh, as as they're showing. Right? I mean, everybody was saying, "Oh my God, Donald Trump's hold on the party. It's all over. He's not on Twitter." Doesn't matter whether he's on Twitter. J.D. Vance uh, won uh, in Ohio, and indeed, most of the many of the candidates that have been blessed by Donald Trump are likely to uh, be moving ahead. Let me uh, shift gears now, uh, as we still have a lot of ground to cover, uh, and certainly a lot of stuff to discuss in Asia, but as well uh, on this issue of, um, and and I, I just want to make this abundantly clear: I am not criticizing the great journalism uh, that is being done by the New York Times and their great reporters uh, on uh, reporting. Um, that the United States is, is helping Ukraine and that some of the intelligence that the United States uh, has provided uh, has been used to help uh, the Ukrainians kill Russian generals or uh, to target and to sink the Moskva and indeed uh, accomplish uh, other goals since the very beginning, the administration, uh, and we have reported on this program, has been helping by intelligence. All of our NATO allies and partners are helping not just with hardware, but in, in, in intelligence. And indeed, um, the, the, the structure uh, of that collection apparatus is, is large, extremely capable, developed over a long period of time. And the Ukrainians are using that as well as their own Uh, exemplary knowledge of Russian forces to take a toll. What I'm curious about, and Chris, uh, give me your sense, because you were uh, not just a retired United States Navy uh, commander, but also a public affairs officer, right? Clearly the administration is messaging, you know, we on this program and a lot of other people were criticizing the administration, do more, do faster. You're not doing enough. And then in short, you know, but pretty much behind the scenes, it appeared the administration was doing quite a lot. And now it's, it's looking for a little bit of credit, even if doing that is is now sort of problematic what what do you think is driving the administration and why not just say no comment because the administration at ver- various levels whether it's John Kirby at the Pentagon or over at the White House saying well yes we are giving them intelligence but what they do with it is is their own we're not the ones targeting you know which if you're a dead russian general or you know the family of somebody who has a you know i mean obviously you're the your leader is the one who caused the war but still um whether it it forces putin into a corner and dove and patrick want to get your sense on this as well go ahead chris
3: well i think the temptation for the administration any administration is to try to have their cake and eat it too um and, and in this case i think they're trying hard to at least when they go to the podium to be deliberate and to be consistent in their messaging and then sadly when they do their litany of backgrounders or off the record discussions um they or the subject matter experts that uh, reporters seek out either formally or informally um, are are sharing information that is in direct odds with what they're saying on the record. I mean, that, that's not news in, in Washington. Um, But what, what is news and, and what is concerning right now is the message that it sends to the Russians, right? I mean, we, you guys have talked about for weeks that, um, as the Russian army does, you know, poorer and poorer, um, and the expectations continue to drop for uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, his military, and, and he feels caged, this type of public messaging can't help um, but make people wonder at what point does Vladimir Putin lash out and whether that's the lash out, in, you know, in, in kinetic operations, or whether it's through cyber or, or whatever. So, Um, to the point that you started the discussion with, the sooner that the administration can really get its arms around uh, this messaging issue, make people understand that there's a reason that they're saying the things that they're saying on the record. Um, and to try to tamp down this background and off the record chatter, the the better it will be. The more this continues, I, I think the more um, accelerant it throws on this smoldering fire that, that could be um, you know, a strike by the Russians uh, at the West as they get more and more desperate.
0: I, I should point out, right, I mean, Tony Thomas uh, sort of nailed it, right? Do your job and shut your uh, pie hole. Um, I mean, ultimately, these reporters are reporting what people say. If people don't say it, right, loose lips do uh, sink ships, uh, as, as they say. Dov, um, I want to go to you. Uh, great event at CSIS on the, the 40th anniversary of the Falkland Islands. Um, the former Navy Secretary John Lehman was uh, in, in extremely fine form. Uh, and it was a terrific uh, d- discussion, and you participated on it. In it, and you know, at the time, uh, America was coming under some criticism for not doing more uh, to help uh, Britain, whereas you were the guy in charge with the extraordinary top secret effort to basically give the United Kingdom every single thing they wanted and to do it quickly. Whether it was spaceborne intelligence, moving satellites, <laughs> anti-radiation missiles, aimed, i mean, you know what I mean—it was a vast list of stuff that you were coordinating does the you know first the importance of of keeping your pie hole shut uh, right i mean i think we should use this as a learning experience right as dangerous and as awful and terrible this is we should be learning to step up our game vis-a-vis the chinese including better opsec and including better messaging discipline from from your standpoint does this push vladimir putin in a corner and what are some actually uh, lessons from the Falkland era that we should be actually relearning because during the Cold War, the United States was very, very good at simply saying no comment.
2: Well, the answer to the first one, and and you may recall that a couple of weeks ago, I wrote on the Hill defending Austin uh, from the accusation that what he had said uh, would lead Putin to, I don't know, start World War Three or something. But I think Chris is right that, you know, you can't keep doing that. Uh, in fact, there is stuff that uh, I... Passed on to the uh, Brits uh, at Cap Weinberger's request, that is still classified 40 years later. Uh, Nobody knew what I was up to. Um, Nobody on the British side or the American side. Uh, I was so junior at the time that even though I was going to London to interface with the uh, Minister of state for defense in those days, Peter Blaker, I used to get criticized by the taxi drivers who, who you know, said, you Americans are doing nothing. And the U.S. embassy didn't know that I was there. Uh, in fact, Al Haig didn't know that I was there. Uh, and I think that's the way it needs to be done. Um, we can supply the Ukrainians everything that we think we can give them, uh, but we don't have to brag about it. Uh, and it's not just because uh, we might push Putin into a corner. It's because These sorts of operations do not work as well when you make them all public. Uh, So that actually is one lesson of the Falklands. There are some others as well. Uh, One of the things that uh, is troubling in retrospect, even though I was involved in it, is that I was essentially reporting to the Secretary of Defense as a very, very junior official. Um, We have too damn many layers Uh, of bureaucracy and it's very very difficult to respond quickly uh, when you have so much bureaucracy Um, clearly uh, a secretary of defense a president needs advisors but you don't need that many layers and you shouldn't be in a situation where because my boss was indifferent his boss was pro-argentine and his boss the secretary of uh, deputy secretary frank carlucci was also relatively pro-argentine i wound up reporting to the secretary of defense that's not how it should work Uh, Another major lesson is that um, we still do not, and this particularly for the Navy, Chris may want to comment on that, Uh, we still do not uh, provide the kind of protection uh, against fires, against smoke, uh, that's essentially sank the Sheffield, the British uh, destroyer Sheffield. Uh, We had those lessons. There was a report uh, that I was part of uh, to Secretary Layman, to John, to... uh, That talked about this, but we seem to have unlearned or forgotten those lessons. Um, And of course, the people on the Moskva didn't learn those lessons either, which is why they went down. Uh, It seems to me that you you don't have to be a historian, but there are lessons to be learned that uh, at a minimum history rhymes. And in some cases, history is exactly the same.
0: Uh, indeed, and uh, I uh, uh, just to come into the audience, uh, I uh, wrote a piece about a week ago, I think, uh, that basically said, give more aid and do it far more quietly. You don't have to detail exactly what it is you're giving the Ukrainians because the Russians are listening as well. And I did make Falkland Islands uh, parallels. I was, I was glad you mentioned the endurance example. We've discussed that on this show uh, for some weeks since the beginning of the 40th anniversary commemoration. Had the Thatcher government's 1981 review not decided to shrink the British military and to retire the guard ship uh, and Antarctic survey vessel HMS Endurance, um, you know, that sent a message to the Argentines. They didn't care about the Falklands. And there are parallels in terms of the administration's budget request. Presence actually matters as much as combat capability in some cases uh, to telegraph intent. Chris, do you want to take a, a damage control uh, bite really quickly before I bring Patrick into this uh, and and go to the Pacific uh, part of the discussion?
3: Yeah, I mean, you really need to look no further than the Bonham Richard fire and the collisions of the Fitzgerald and McCain uh, to, you know, to see the points that Dove is making. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done uh, in, in the area of damage control and firefighting. I would say one thing, though, right? I mean, we, um, you know, in the,
0: you know, unfortunately, uh, the Exoset missile hit damaged the single fire main system that existed on Type 42 destroyers, uh, which is why the fire got out of control, whereas we have, uh, or and I think it was addressed on Royal Navy ships, uh, but to have a little bit greater uh, redundancy. I don't want to restart that uh, discussion, uh, but folks should check out our great conversation with uh, John T. Powis, who was the navigator aboard HMS Conqueror, uh, to discuss some Falkland Islands lessons learned. And we're going to have a couple of other programs here uh, over the coming weeks uh, with, with lessons learned. Um, there was
2: one other. There was one other lesson go ahead, Doug. that, uh, right. and I mentioned that before, in in the context of what uh, Kath Hicks said. The the one major lesson coming out of this the, this study for laymen was sustainability. And uh, again, the Brits ran out of equipment so quickly. I mean, that was one of the reasons why I had to do what I had to do. In fact, uh, the Brits came to me and said, we, don't, we can't afford to pay for things we don't know that we're gonna use. And I came up with a deal where we would turn stuff over to uh, our warehouse on Wide Awake Island, uh, White Awake Airfield and on Ascension Island. And then the Brits would only pay for what they actually took out. That lesson. That we still do not sufficiently fund ammunition, munitions, which is not rocket science. Uh, that lesson still applies,
0: uh, and and I, I think a critically uh, important one, uh, Dove. Uh, to be honest, um, Patrick, um, how 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 are the Chinese? Right, I mean, sort of give us give us an update. Right, I mean, these. I would say it's a major intelligence disclosure on the one hand. On the other hand, it's not, right? Administration officials and our allies and partners have said we're sharing intelligence with the Ukrainians, that they would use some of that intelligence to actually kill Russians should not come as a surprise to, uh, you know, really to anybody. Uh, And indeed, it was Mark Milley who made the original disclosure, you know, made another disclosure, you know, at a a hearing uh, that said that we are, you know, helping the uh, uh, Ukrainians with Uh, Intelligence. So um, you know this is this is not um, you know not rocket science uh, in in a sense. Uh, Let me take you to where the Chinese are, what the Chinese thinking is, what the Chinese messaging is. Right. I mean, we've talked about uh, the lockdowns, and that's occupying some bandwidth. Right. I mean, a big debate whether to lock down the capital. If this had been you know a more liberal Shanghai. That have been locking it down, maybe because it's Beijing, they're not locking it down, even though there's a rise and spike in cases. And I believe there are some 26 other cities that fall into that category. Give, give, us, give us your sense on where the Chinese are and what they're thinking is at, at the moment.
4: Well, that was a long question, Vago. Um, you know, on the security and protection of classified information, we do signal to our allies and partners our inability to keep secrets uh, and that and that raises concerns uh, about our seriousness, our discipline, our professionalism. Um, and it undoubtedly, um, uh, you know, not only shows a certain recklessness, potentially with escalation, that is, we're, we're willing to risk escalation by revealing this kind of information for maybe narrow political interests to protect ourselves, that we're doing enough to help the Ukrainians. There's just so many reasons why uh, you don't talk about the specifics of intelligence cooperation. It's, hap- it's, you know, fine to talk about we're going to provide information and we're going to cooperate with Ukraine fully. That is the right thing to do. Um, and then after the, the operations over, after the war's over, maybe decades after, as Dove has just suggested with, with the Falklands, maybe then we talk about the details of what happened. Um, let people guess uh, rather than to confirm it. That's my message to uh, U.S. officials uh, and our allies and partners. China is looking at... Um, you know, the, the ongoing war uh, in in Ukraine through a very different prison. I mean, it's still touting, again, this global security initiative concept of indivisible security, an indivisible security community, which includes Russia, China standing together despite the fact that China's losing um, uh, legitimacy by supporting Russia. Um, in, in that same phrase, by the way, of indivisible security has come up several times this week. It's a very important phrase. You're going to hear it over and over again for different reasons with different interpretations. Prime Minister Kishida in London um, with Prime Minister Boris Johnson announcing a new reciprocal access agreement, excellent, between Japan and the United Kingdom um, and closer uh, closer ties. But, but Prime Minister Kishida is talking about the reason for that is because we have indivisible security on both ends of the Eurasian landmass. It's the same reason that Kurt Campbell now talks about um, one, not two theaters of military operation when talking about Ukraine and potentially a conflict over Taiwan or in East Asia. It's because it's an indivisible security community from a Western perspective, not just from the Chinese uh, Russian revisionist uh, sort of camp perspective uh, in a different context. So um, we have contrasting narratives going on right now over this out of the war. Um, You know, China is focused so much on its internal insecurity right now. So the COVID uh, policy, the zero COVID policy or dynamic zero COVID policy, as the Chinese call it, um, is not working well. Uh, You know, the party is saying we're going to have persistence, uh, you know, persistence is victory. We're going to have to keep, keep up with this. Even though you have people like the former editor of the global times writing before it was taken offline that Shanghai has fallen because of the extended protracted lockdown that's going to go on at least through the rest of wow. May. Beijing is all all, all but in lockdown. Um, the economy is going backwards. Manufacturing is down for a second straight month. Um, housing is down. I mean, you know, the economy is a wreck right now in China at a time when uh, Xi Jinping is trying to build up to the 20th Party Congress. So um, the, the, the disconnect between the domestic politics of China and this sort of bold uh, international uh, talk supporting Russia uh, is really in contradiction.
0: Um, and uh, I should point out uh, to the audience: you're a retired United States Navy commander and intelligence officer, so you know of which you speak uh, when 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 you make some of these points, Patrick. Uh, aside aside from being a great practitioner of of the craft of analysis, um, let me ask you about uh, Nobu Kishi's uh, meeting with Lloyd uh, Austin uh in in washington what was covered uh it was interesting that the japanese defense minister raised the issue of an imminent threat from from north korea we have a tendency of having put the north koreans uh on sort of a little bit of a back burner right i mean they're doing missile tests there is some rhetoric but it's it's not that bad um what is it that what's what's occupying why why are the japanese saying what it is they're saying because i know that you had an opportunity to meet with the delegation
4: Well, the Japanese are rightfully concerned about the deteriorating security uh, environment in Asia, um, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, could embolden China. But meanwhile, it may be emboldening Kim Jong-un, who has just had another ICBM test this past week. It was apparently a Hwasong-15 test this Wednesday. Um, So, uh, And there are further imageries showing that the nuclear testing is likely to resume in North Korea. So um, exactly as I predicted weeks ago, Kim Jong-un realizing he wasn't gonna get anything else from the Moon administration that's leaving office next week, uh, wanting to basically greet the incoming conservative administration of Yoon Seok-il uh, next week with uh, a nuclear crisis and a, and a missile crisis. And the Japanese see this coming um, and they're uh, trying to make sure that we are prepared for that, not just bilaterally with the United States, not just nationally within japan but also trilaterally with the new uh, incoming unit administration that has reached out already with a high-level delegation to tokyo um so kishi uh, defense minister kishi uh, secretary austin uh, in-depth discussions at the pentagon this week talking about uh, the korean scenarios the need to cooperate on deterrence in east asia uh as well as this sort of indivisible security across both ends of eurasia um and then also um Full throated support from the the Secretary of Defense for the Japanese interest in acquiring counterstrike weapons. This is the first time since the end of World War II that Japan would be acquiring counterstrike weapons. It's now the recommendation of all the LDP uh, policy leaders who've just put forward a paper on this. Um, I I add all of this, and I think this is the right direction to go in. And they're also talking about spending 2% GDP eventually uh, on defense here over a five year period. But as of today, right now, Vago, Japan is spending less than 1% of its GDP on defense. So, you know, again, contradictions here. You cannot tell the Americans in the world that the environment is getting worse and worse every year. And then we look at your defense spending and you're saying you're not spending any more on defense. So it's time, it's high time for Japan to ramp up their defense spending right now to deal with deterrence in East Asia.
0: I uh, couldn't agree with you more, right? The pressure the United States applied to Germany uh, prompted Olaf Scholz to uh, markedly change course, uh, announce a $100 billion uh, euro uh, fund uh, that has already paid for F-35s and is going to pay for a whole series uh, of other upgrades to the German military, even if that spending is off to a very, very slow start. Uh, And for Japan to not it, Japan can't regionally be taken seriously if it is not improving uh, its own capabilities. And I would add one other point. We still have too large of a gap in the connectivity between American and Japanese forces. The fact that the buildings are across the street now is great, but folks need to be actually sitting each other in an integrated, unified command center, as opposed to not, uh, which which is the case, uh, because we still have an enormous number of gaps and seams, and more than somewhat neuralgic behavior, I uh, believe, uh, on the part of the Japanese. And I would love to have a a little bit of a, I mean, you know, just real quickly, give us your sense. Is anybody focused on solving those extremely obvious disconnects? Uh, Dove mentioned uh, the paucity of munitions uh, in our stocks, especially now that we've been pouring a lot of this capability into Ukraine the Japanese are very shallow in the amount of munitions that they have uh, with which to either uh, prosecute a fight forward or even defend itself, right? What what is anybody focused on the mechanical stuff we have to do to improve the command and control links and then fundamentally address the depth of Japan's magazines uh, and, and actually offensive punch? Uh, because on paper, it all looks really good. In a real world fashion, it, it maybe is not as good as what you would imagine it to be, without being discharitable at all.
4: There's work underway, um, but not enough, not fast enough, uh, from my perspective. Um, Good reports out of the RAND Corporation, for instance, Jeffrey Hornung has written about this low stockpile. This is a critical need to focus on it. Same thing when we're talking about Taiwan and the fact that they're going to get Hellfire missiles uh, here within the next three years, finally, uh, for their own anti-ship defense and their own anti-access strategy. Great move. But really, 100 missiles three years from now, um, I think we've seen in Ukraine, you can shoot through 100 missiles very quickly. So it's very important to actually get serious about making sure that you have the inventory to show you have the capability to wage a protracted conflict. Um, The integration between the U.S. and Japan, and I think uh, potentially now with Korea, it's a real opportunity um, that I think has fallen into the lap here. And President Biden will have a chance to talk directly to President Yoon. Uh, When he goes to Korea as part of his first trip to Asia in office uh, on the on the 20th of of this month, Um, and he'll be then in Tokyo talking to Prime Minister Kishida and talking to the quad leaders of India, Australia, Japan, that could be a new Australian Prime Minister, by the way, Albanese could be elected uh, on the third week of this month as well, so we could have a um, uh, some serious progress toward integration but it's going to be a long, slow slog, and we're going to need the resources. We're going to need constant pressure from Congress, from the executive branch, from allies, um, because this has been going on far too long uh, without the kind of integration we need for showing real capacity. Because if you want to deter conflict, you better be prepared to fight. And if we're not prepared to fight, um, China and others are going to know that we're not able to do it, and they can take a quick short, sharp war uh, and achieve their objectives. And that could be North Korea, that could be Russia, it could be China, it could be Iran you know we have to have that capability. I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the warning sign for all of us that we have to have more capability now.
0: And I should point out that when Michelle Flournoy did speak at the Reagan Institute uh, today, she uh, and she was uh, uh, part of the Mike Mullins delegation uh, to Taiwan uh, recently uh, indicated that uh, you know nobody should mistake uh, or underestimate the United States interest in uh, defending Taiwan. So she noted that the ambiguity strategy was a good one but she said nobody should make that mistake and the Chinese leadership shouldn't miscalculate. Very quickly, uh, Michael and Chris um, on weapon stocks, how are lawmakers looking at this issue? Obviously, the 33 billion has some replenishment money in it. There are other uh, line items that are being created, right? Uh, Stinger missiles not in production for some time, uh, allow uh, the, the defense, uh, the president in fact, visited uh, the Javelin line uh, and we talked about how important that is. How how big of a focus is this for lawmakers? And then Chris, how big of a focus is this? You know, we've talked heard Elaine Luria talk about uh, increasing magazine depth. Uh, you know, how's the Navy looking at it? Michael first, uh, then Chris, and then Dove. I want to get uh, your thoughts on Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia as well. Go, go ahead, Michael.
1: This is a big focus for lawmakers. Uh, there's a lot of concern uh, about our capacity to ramp up production, not just for ourselves to replace what we're sending over to Ukraine, but to replace the stockpiles over European allies who are also sending uh, weapons and supplies uh, to to Ukraine. Uh, It's a concern not just of the Armed Services Committee, who has reached out to me and many of my clients to have these discussions and ask them very good probing questions, but the Foreign Affairs Committee is also concerned about this and will likely hold a hearing on this uh, in the coming weeks to understand what uh, our capabilities are and aren't and what, we, what can be done to try and rectify it.
0: And, and Chris, give us your uh, quick uh, Navy uh, sense, right? I mean, is there enough in this budget to replenish magazines and missiles, right? Elaine Luria uh, and, and uh, Mike Gallagher, uh, to their credit, uh, as well as Joe Courtney have talked about uh, increasing magazine depth. Where are we uh, on that and, and, and what are your Navy buddies telling
3: you? Yeah, I think it sends all the right signals, Vago. But I mean, this is really a time distance problem. It's not so much a money problem. Um, It it takes a long time to build those weapons, right? So this is not something that you fix in one budget year. And, And so maybe the, and we've talked about this before, maybe the silver lining of uh, conflict in Ukraine is that it, it does sort of get people's attention and make them realize that whether it's dealing with Russia or a potential conflict with China, we've got to start preparing now. We've got to start cranking these uh, these missile lines up. We've got to start shrinking the amount of time that it takes to, uh, y- you know, to build these uh, advanced munitions and get them out to uh, to places. So uh, this is something that the Congress, I think, is going to have to go after for the next three, four, maybe even five years, if they want to get to the numbers that we need. Should there be uh, continued conflict in Europe and God forbid conflict in Asia?
0: Um, we've got Dove for another two minutes. Dove, uh, give us your sense on the president's visit, but also what Turkey and uh, what this rapprochement between Turkey and Saudi Arabia mean?
2: Well, uh, you know, if the president actually goes there, um, he's clearly wants the Saudis to ramp up their oil production. Uh, The Saudis are furious at us. There are constant reports that the Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, actually refused to talk to President Biden. They're annoyed because uh, the Iran deal is still not formally dead. And uh, if the deal went through, money would go to the Iranians, which would then wind up with the Houthis, which would then turn out to be missiles fired at Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. So uh, that's something that has to be clarified. And I'm sure uh, the president, if he goes to Saudi, will get an earful from the Saudis. And we have to remember, too, that uh, the Saudis are angry. Yes, they're You know, they they really were terrible in the way they dealt with uh, Mr. Khashoggi. But their argument is, is that when you is that a reason for breaking the 70 year plus alliance? Uh, And uh, that's something that will have to be sorted out as well. Uh, Turkey has reconciled, it seems, with the Saudis. And that's a pattern because they seem to have done the same thing with Israel. The president of Israel was in Turkey. Uh, the Turks, uh, I think Ukraine prompted uh, the Turks to realize that um, their current policy was simply leading them nowhere. Uh, on the other hand, they need to be part of NATO in a very real way, uh, and they need to have the kinds of allies that will stand with them and resist uh, the Iranians, who are no great friends of the Turks anyway, uh, and uh, give them uh, some kind of strategic depth in the region. Uh, You know, uh, we're dealing with an autocratic president of Turkey, but Erdogan is no is not a fool. Uh, And uh, I think they probably have made the right decision. And it probably was coming three or four or five years late.
0: Um, And the Iranian uh, uh, ballistic missile test.
2: Well, uh, again, I mean, it's a signal to the United States that the Iranians, uh, you know, are, are not necessarily going to go anywhere beyond Uh, the deal if they make it. And oh, by the way, there are some sunset provisions in the deal that end next year, because they're talking about simply renewing a a deal that's now seven years old. Uh, So uh, the the more time passes, the more ridiculous the deal looks. But that doesn't mean the administration has lost any enthusiasm.
0: And uh, in uh, 30 seconds, uh, and, which is a very important topic that you wrote about this week uh, in The Hill, anti-Semitism uh, rears again as Russia seeks scapegoats uh, for its dismal uh, war. Uh, the deplorable language uh, used by Sergei Lavrov, a man who has uh, made it a career of, of saying deplorable things, uh, manages to achieve new lows. Uh, give, gotcha. give the audience a thumbnail sketch of what yes.
2: uh, well. Basically, uh, what Lavrov said was that Hitler had Jewish origins and that therefore, uh, in a way, the Jews brought the Holocaust on themselves, which is outrageous. It's uh a. It's a story that had been discredited over and over again, but it's a pattern of Russian governments. I mean, they've been blaming Jews since they they absorbed a couple of million after they broke up Poland several times in the 18th century. Uh, It's noteworthy that Putin has not lent his voice to this, although the the, uh, foreign ministry spokesman did back up uh, their boss, uh, Lavrov. And Putin uh, uh, evidently yesterday did speak to uh, to Prime Minister Bennett of Israel and apologized. But I think, well, uh, what Lavrov is doing is essentially signaling that uh, they they recognize that this war is not going to wind up the way they want it. They're looking for a scapegoat. And traditionally, Russian governments have scapegoated the Jews.
0: Exactly. I mean, they've launched a war against anti-fascism, against uh, a country uh, led uh, by a Jewish president which is pretty astonishing. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you very, very very much. Uh, Absolutely terrific conversation as usual. Thanks for being so generous with your time uh, and joining uh, with us. Uh, Everybody hope you guys have a terrific weekend and a terrific week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.